Hello and welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to share some of what's been going on in my own personal story. Like many of you, I started off 2020 with hopes of a great year ahead. However, just five days into the new year, my dad passed away, suddenly and unexpectedly. I had just hugged and kissed him goodbye exactly one week before he was taken, never in a million years thinking it would be the last time I saw him on this earth. The last two weeks since his passing have been undoubtedly some of the hardest, if not the hardest, chapters of my story. My grief, compounded with that of my mom's and my brother's, has seemed unbearable at times. I tell you all this because this podcast is about truth-telling and vulnerability, and if I can't do it with my own story, I can't expect it of my guests. Right now, I'm in a heavy season of grief and sadness. Interviewing guests for the podcast has been the farthest thing from my mind. But I also know stories have the power to heal, and knowing what others have been through can be a balm for a hurting soul. So no doubt, the next women I talk to and the stories I share in the weeks ahead will be related to loss and pain and how God saw people through it. Because selfishly, that's what my soul needs right now. With that said, I recorded today's episode earlier this month, before my story took such a twist. Today's episode is a powerful story, but it's not a conversation for young ears as we talk about some mature subject matter. My guest today is Rebecca Charleston. Rebecca was trapped in human trafficking for 10 years. We talk about how she got into that world and just how difficult it was for her to escape it. But by the grace of God, she did escape, and now she uses her experience to educate others on human trafficking in America. Her story is a hard one to hear, but it's truly a story of hope and restoration. Rebecca and I also talk about the powerful new movie releasing January 23rd for one day only called Blind Eyes Opened, where Rebecca, along with other survivors, shares their story to show the truth behind the world of sex trafficking. Well, Becca, thank you so much for joining me today on the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I am absolutely just honored to get to talk to you. And I just, gosh, your story is such a hard one to hear what you've lived through. But the work that the Lord has done to totally just transform your life is just incredible. So I'm thankful for your bravery just to share all the Lord's done in your life. Well, thank you so much. Honestly, it just, it gives it all purpose. You know, if I let God use it, otherwise it's just something you survive. And so it, it honestly, it helps me more than it helps other people. Sometimes I feel. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, you definitely are not wasting, wasting the story that was 10 years of your life. So for 10 years of your life, you were caught up in sex trafficking. You were a victim starting at the age of 17. And that's the story that you're going to share with us today. But you're now using that. Your, your bio now is just incredible. You're an executive director of Valiant Hearts, a ministry dedicated to eradicating sexual exploitation. You have an MA in criminal justice, and you consult the National Justice Training Center. You've just come full circle Again, incredible what God's done in your life. But let's go ahead and just start with your story. If you can take us back to the beginning, Becca, and how you got into this, because it's not what people think, that it's, you know, just um, girls that we don't know or girls that are from the wrong side of the tracks. You were raised in a typical middle-class home. So start as, start as there. Yeah, that's right. I was raised, I'm the youngest of six kids. Um, my parents have been married 
56 years this coming next month in January of 2020. And um, I was raised going to Baptist church. I was born in Dallas, Texas, and my family moved to Keller, which is a small, quiet, safe suburb of Fort Worth when I was about five years old. And that was kind of the year that I realized that maybe my family's life wasn't like everybody else's. And we had just moved to my my parents' house and we were still living on like pallets on the living room floor. We hadn't um, even had our furniture delivered yet. And uh, we got a knock late one night at the door and it was some of our close family friends that came over to tell us that my oldest brother, Brian, had committed suicide. And it was obviously a really difficult moment in my family's life. You know, I was a young girl, but I remember this profound guilt that I would feel when I would even mention my brother Brian's name. And, you know, my family did the best to recover that they could. Um, My mom, she said she gave it to God, which meant she prayed about it. And so there wasn't a whole lot of talking. You know, as a kid, I obviously got a watered down version of what he did. And my dad had five other mouths to feed. So he went right back to work. And I found out later he didn't speak my brother Brian's name for the next two years out of his mouth, Mm. really. And so there was so much blame to go around. You know, my siblings blamed my parents. My parents blamed each other. It's like the only time they almost got divorced in their whole marriage. And my brother basically had been stealing things out of people's garages. And he'd been using drugs and kind of been in and out of jail a couple times. And he kept bringing drugs into the house with us small children. So my parents would then kick him out again when they found the drugs. And so he just was in this toxic cycle and he finally decided to take his own life. He intentionally overdosed on drugs. And so, um, you know, looking back, what I realized that message taught me as a little girl was that we don't talk about important issues in our household. We just sweep it under the rug and we keep going like everything's okay. And we put on our Sunday dress for church and we plaster a smile on our face. And when people ask us how we're doing, we say we're fine. Mm. And so, um, you know, I had a mostly normal childhood from that point. I was um, a soccer player. I was a cheerleader. I was, you know, really in with the, the good crowd, right? I was popular. I had all the cool friends and I was actually pretty active in my church in my youth. And um, I remember going to revivals and stuff and, um, feeling the, the presence, some of the Holy Spirit at like the revivals. And, but I was raised with that rules and relationship, God in church, you know, that if I, I really truly believe that if I wasn't living the way he wanted, then he didn't want to hear from me. And so it was all this rules based authoritarian. And that's kind of the household I grew up in too, is very authoritarian. And so um, at when I was in the fifth grade, I remember I started getting bullied in school a little bit. And um, just by older boys and I kind of hit puberty early. And so I was awkward and my body started to develop and nobody else's was. And so I hated it. I hated my femininity and, and I tried to hide it and the older boys would make fun of me. And so I started getting these messages, you know, about my body and about what it meant to be a woman and, and how men treated you. And I spent the night one night at one of my best friend's houses and Um, her older brother was in the ninth grade and he had a friend spend the night that same night. And that was the first night I was actually sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't have language for that. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I mean, it hurt, but then there was also this older guy paying attention to me that that part felt good, you know, because I was being bullied by boys my age. And so I, I just hid that experience. I didn't know what to do with it. Um, 
And so uh, fast forward about four years, I'm still, you know, I'm a cheerleader, soccer player, as I mentioned. And um, I went to a church lock-in and I um, was just beginning to get those little seeds of rebellion. Like mm-hmm. being a teenage girl is hard on all of us. Amen. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> much, much less when you're walking around carrying pain from unresolved trauma. Yeah. And so um, I knew this guy that lived close to the bowling alley. Basically, it was a church lock in at a bowling alley, you know, the kind where they lock the doors and everybody stays in yes. all night and, you know, nobody sleeps and has fun. And so I decided that I was going to sneak out of the bowling alley to go hang out with this guy. And I thought maybe like I would kiss him or something and then sneak back in the bowling alley. And so I, I was able to sneak out without anyone noticing. And um, he happened to live two blocks behind the bowling alley. So he walked me to his house. And as soon as we got to his house, he took me into his room and he shoved me on the bed and, and mm. violently raped me. Mm. And um, I, again, I, I didn't have language for that. Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't know what was happening. Like I did my best to fight him and I fought him. And, you know, when you're going through trauma, there's a central and peripheral details. Today I have the, the ability to do tra- trainings on the neurobiology of trafficking and how coercion can feel like choice. And so um, looking back, like I, I focused on a couple of key details and those are the only memories I have of that experience. And, mm. and so I fought him and I was able to grab my clothes and I ran back to the bowling alley and I snuck back in and I pretended like nothing happened. Oh, Becca, gosh, Be- shame of it. I mean, I just can't imagine. Well, yeah, but also I blamed myself. Mm. You know, yeah. I, bl- I knew I had done something wrong. I had snuck out. And while I know that shouldn't have happened to me, I still thought I would be the one to get in trouble if I told anyone. Mm-hmm. And so that in, in the shame, you're right. Like all these messages of that men are just going to take whatever they want from you and that I didn't have any identity. What I said didn't matter. Yeah. Um, it, I hated it. I hated my life. Um, I actually, you know, back in the fifth grade was the first time I tried to commit suicide. Um, mm. And I just, I, I w- struggled with depression, obviously, um, throughout my youth and preteen and teenage years. And um, so within about a year's time from that rape, I, um, I started using drugs. I just wanted to be numb, you know? Yeah. I didn't want to feel the things I was feeling. And, and so, um, I had just entered the ninth grade and that's when I started, started using drugs. And, uh, my parents were very strict. They had, you know, if you live under our roof, you go by our rules. And so, um, I wound up, uh, I, I was hiding the drug use. I wound up actually getting arrested. I stole at school and, um, got kicked out of school. And so there's all of these warning signs, you know, and, right. and what I love to, to train on is, you know, like, what about the kids that aren't in the system? Because when we look at trafficking, like probably, you know, 85 to 90% that we are able to recover and that we, we find are from the system, foster care system, poverty, homelessness, right? But what about the kids not in the system? You know, what are we doing to go after these kids that are sounding alarm bells by their bad behavior? Because there's no such thing as a bad kid. Right. You know, there's, there's kids that are experiencing stuff that they should never be experiencing and they're acting out with bad behavior by skipping school, by stealing, by whatever it may be, those are the kids we need to be running after and finding out, hey, what's going on? Not the kids that we need to be suspending and kicking out of school and and looking at with disdain. 
Right. Like, what is the root of that behavior? Why Why are they acting out? I think I heard you talk or share somewhere else that we see that 10% acting out, but it's that 90% below, like what's what's really going on? Exactly. Striving that behavior. And with you, yeah. you had all this trauma that you had stuffed down, not shared. Your parents had no idea and you are acting no out and coping the best way you can. And that looks like your life of drugs and dropping out of school and that. Yeah. And so when for, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. I'm so glad you said that because I kept my parents at, at arm's length. I didn't let them in. I didn't want them to know anything because I thought I would just get in trouble. And so, uh, you know, they all they could see was the behavior. And so they just kept trying to correct the behavior, which just made the problem worse, you know. Yeah. And so they threw a Hail Mary and they wound up signing over their um, rights of me and placed me in an institution in East Texas. Okay. And that's the only thing that they, they thought our baby girl is going to die just like our son did. I had actually already moved out of their house by that time. At the age of 16, I wound up moving in. I had a job at the mall and I moved in with my manager's sister in Grapevine, which is a couple towns away from Keller, mm -hmm. which meant I went to school even less. And undoubtedly, my parents were getting calls every day of, your daughter's not here today. Your daughter's not here today. And they were terrified. You know, they mm -hmm. had no idea what to do. They thought I was going to die and they suspected I was using drugs, but I wouldn't talk to them. And, and so they thought, well, maybe this place would help. And so they sent me to this place and, you know, it, they were really doing the best they could. And I, as I've grown and, you know, matured, I've been able to see that. But at the time, it felt like betrayal. Mm -hmm. It felt like abandonment. It felt like rejection. Um, once I grasped what was happening, they, they lied to get me there, of course. And um, so it was a complete shock and surprise to me. And once I realized what was happening in that moment, I went ballistic. I mean, I couldn't believe what they were doing. I was so hurt and, and shocked. And I said every mean and hateful thing I could to them. I vowed to never call them mom and dad again. And how dare they do this to me? You know, I felt like I'm living on my own. I don't ask you for anything. How dare you take away my freedom like this? Mm. You know, in reality, I was 16 and using drugs and dropping out of high school due to lack of attendance. Right, right. <laughs> you know, but, but you just felt it as an ultimate betrayal, betrayal from your folks. Sure. Exactly. And like they were abandoning me at this place where I knew no one and nothing mm -hmm. and and so, you know, at the age of 16, being isolated from the entire world, that's really hard. Yeah. And after a couple months of being there and having literally no communication, no, no letters, no phone calls, no nothing, um, you know, I started drinking the Kool-Aid. I started yeah. thinking like, well, maybe this isn't, it was a Christian facility. Thankfully, they forced us to go to church three times a day though. And I mean, really just shoved Jesus down your throat, which we all know. Right. That's not how we, right. It was a quote people. Christian facility, but it was very regimented, hardcore demanding. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, but after a few months, like I said, I started drinking the Kool-Aid and I thought, okay, you know, maybe this isn't what God has for me. Like I was raised right. I knew, I knew what the things I was doing was wrong. And so I started writing my family letters once they allowed me to, and um, several months in, I was able to get a visit, an afternoon visit with my family. And that's when I pled my case to them that I was ready to move back under their roof. I was ready to live by their rules. And I realized everything I was doing was wrong and I was sorry. And my mom and dad said no to me. And inside in me, something just snapped in that moment. Mm -hmm. And I made a vow to do whatever I could to work that program and run and never look back. 
And that's exactly what I did. At the six month mark, I was good. I had a good enough behavior for a home visit. It was over the holidays and um, I had turned 17 by that point. So I knew if I ran and they caught me that they couldn't force me to go back and they could keep me in the facility if I if I was still there, but they couldn't force me to go back at the age of 17. And so I um, on the last day at my mom and dad's house, I snuck my mom's phone out of her purse and went in the bathroom and called a friend from high school and said, you gotta come get me. You know, I can't go back to that place, it's miserable. Knock on the front left window of the house at 1 a.m., park around the corner so nobody sees your car. And you know, sure enough, 1 a.m., I get the knock on the window and I literally broke the blinds on my way out. And Mm -hmm. I never looked back. I ran around that corner to the car and jumped in. And to me, my family was dead to me. I hated them for what they did to me in that moment. And I just started living with whoever I could. That friend let me stay at his house. His parents felt sorry for me. They felt like what my parents had done to me was wrong and they didn't um, agree with that. And so they let me stay over there for a little while. And until one of my brothers came looking for me, knowing that was a friend of mine. And then his parents told me that, well, I'd really overstayed my welcome and I needed to find somewhere else to go. And so, you know, honestly, if you paid me $10 million right now, Andrea, I could not give you a linear timeline of who, mm-hmm. where I lived and who I met. I mean, I mean you're, you're 17, you have no job, you don't have a high school diploma, you have not been living in society. I mean, yeah, where are you going to go? I have a 17 year old. I just can't even imagine. So you're exactly. off trying to survive really. Every single day. I mean, you know, stealing food in order to eat, stealing clothes. I mean, just to make meet the most basic human needs. I'm stealing things. I'm just meeting people, you know, which is obviously out in the streets, like meeting drug dealers, right? I mean, just the kind of worst of society, right? The most broken people. But, you know, honestly, I was attracted to really broken people because I was really broken. And I felt like those are the only people that would accept me. Mm. And that's, I mean, Satan just whispers in your ear. And it, I remember how strong that feeling was. Like, I didn't even want to be around normal people because I thought they would judge me. Yeah. And, and honestly, that's kind of the treatment that I got when I did go in public and, and was around normal people. And, you know, the, I often share the example, like when I was standing in line buying two boxes of condoms and high heel stilettos with a face of makeup on at 4am and I'm in line, right. As you're heading to work, like, you know, how do you look at me when I'm yeah. in public? Like, yeah. no, no, you, people do look at you judgmentally. And, right. you know, once you start getting arrested, especially for prostitution, you have this scarlet letter on your chest that society as a whole looks down on you and doesn't want to give you any opportunities. I was getting my internship during my undergrad degree, and I was working for Rise Court as an intern, which is a specialty diversion court in Tarrant County in Texas. And I'll never forget one of the girls called in one day and she was bawling and the case manager was talking to her and like, okay, calm down. What's going on? And she said that Goodwill told her she could not complete her community service there because she was a prostitute Mm, and like a community service. Mm. Like, are you kidding me? That's how, but that's how we get treated. And so people don't understand like, you know, how it just, feeds itself. It's a cyclical thing that once you get in, you can't get out, you know? Yeah. And that's when you just said that, that's very convicting because we as Christians don't think, oh, we don't do that, but we do. 
Like if you're gonna, if okay. we're going to be honest and that's what we, we encounter that, like we're automatically judging. And if you yeah. don't know really what lies behind the surface and how a girl or her story of getting into that, you might, you, mm -hmm. we probably are quick to judge at first glance, but they're not there because they right. want to be. And there's so much more to that story. And as the church and Christians, we need to rise up and start being advocates and loving for this. And that's your story is such an example. So how you're in that you're in that point of desperation trying to survive which is perfect grounds for leading you to this lifestyle so how do you exactly. how does this happen then in your story yeah i i dealers and it wasn't where the drug business got slow and the other girl that was living there with me told told me we needed to do something to pull our own weight and that sounded reasonable to my 17 year old brain sure. and so she took me to a strip club called dreams off of industrial boulevard in dallas and i got hired at age 17 mm -hmm. i didn't have an id and they didn't care they intentionally didn't put me on stage because they knew i was a minor and i that is not a an inherent behavior that is a learned behavior yeah. and there's there's nothing natural about getting on a stage and taking your clothes off for money like that's you don't grow up dreaming about becoming that as a little girl and so as good as the other girl, Lillian was her name, was as talking me into going, once we got there, she just left me on my own. Gosh. And I just remember, I don't even know if I left with $5. I don't remember doing lap dance. I just remember sitting on 50, 60 year old men's laps and just drinking shots of Hennessy just to make it through the night. Mm. I, I didn't like what I was doing. I felt gross. Uh, and so I started to feel used. And there and was- you didn't have another choice. I mean, you really, I mean, Okay, I guess no, sort of you did, no. but really the reality of it, you and your world right there, that was your only choice to survive. That's why you were doing it. Right. Um, I mean, I, at, at that point, like those drug dealers had become my family, as crazy yeah. as it sounds. I have these words tattooed on my arm, unity, loyalty, brotherhood, sacrifice, and love equals family. And, you know, that's what I was out there searching yeah. for. I was searching for love and family. I was searching for people who had my back and I had theirs. And... I was just looking in, you know, really terrible places. And so this, these people felt like my family and okay. Every night at, you know, five or 6 PM, she's like, all right, let's go to work. And mm -hmm. so you just got in the car and went. And so, um, there was this cute guy that used to come into the strip club. And I honestly don't even remember how many times I met him and how many times he came in. The only question I really remember asking him was if he had drugs and he told me he did. And so I decided to run away from the strip club and get out of that life and leave those drug dealers in my review mirror. And I would start this new life. And maybe this guy was going to be my boyfriend. And uh, he told me he had drugs. And so I, I literally ran away at the, from the strip club with him. And I just got in his car and he took me to his apartment in Dallas. And the first day was great. You know, we got high all day together. He was telling me all of his dreams about he was an aspiring you know musician and he just needed to get that studio time and he could record that hit single and then we'd get it on the radio and we'd all be rich and famous and life would be great and mind you you know at this point in time in my life my dream at that point was to get a gold tooth like <laughs> on my face <laughs> you know to have a gold tooth with a diamond in it like that that was my my goals back then and so it's very different obviously from the woman I am today and right. so everything he sold me sounded great like okay we're gonna be famous and you know we'll be rappers and 
cool. Life will yeah, be awesome. and you're high too. I mean, it's not like you're living exactly. in a sane, rational mind here. So you're high. That sounds good. You're not stripping that. You know, it sounds good. Exactly. And so um, he had sex with me later that night, and we woke up the next day and got high again all day. And uh, later that night, he told me to get in the car with the other two girls, and they would show me the ropes. And mm-hmm. that's the night that I would realize what his dreams were going to cost me in the form of my dignity and my body. And I said, okay. And you know, you don't ask a lot of questions living that kind of lifestyle. Questions get you killed. Questions make you seem like a snitch. And I was trying to do anything but that. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be a part of something. And so I said, okay. And I, I got in the car and I found myself in the backseat of a car on Harry Hines Boulevard, which is the track is what we call it, or a known area of prostitution. And I was being told exactly how to ask people to have sex with me and exactly how much money I had to charge them. And it was like my entire world flipped upside down on top of me. Like I had no idea what to do. I remember thinking if I run, I'm going to get raped and murdered and chopped up in little pieces and no one's ever going to find my body. Harry Hines is a very scary area of town. And here, I mean, I should have been in high school. I should have been a sophomore. Like I should have been picking out, picking out a mom for homecoming. Like, And here I was being told to do these unspeakable things. And I remember after that first day, like the amount of shame that you feel like, oh, it's unbearable. It's like this huge gorilla that climbs on your back. And I remember thinking like, how can I ever be normal again? Like, how could I ever even look at my mom and dad and tell them what's happening to me? Like, how would anyone ever understand this? And so I kept my mouth shut and I stayed in that situation for about two months. Every single day I fantasized about suicide. I, you know, just, I just wanted to die to me. That was the only way out. And I didn't, I didn't know even where to run. I was living in different areas of town that I'd never been in before and constantly controlled and monitored by the other girls or by the pimp. Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember, and this, sorry to interrupt you, but I think this is a good point to t- show people like we hear of modern day slavery, sex trafficking this is what it is. One of the, what, one of the examples of what it is. It's not that you are like bought and sold at an auction or from another country sold for a price. Like you're in modern day sex trafficking right here in your life. You, You can't get out somebody you're making money that you're having to give it to this pimp and you're in it. So that's what it is right here. And that's what I want people to realize. Yeah, a lot of people have seen the movie Taken and they think that's what human trafficking looks like. And while that, that does sometimes happen, in America, usually it's not the norm. You know, there's yeah. actually more than 25 different types of human trafficking in America. Wow. Yeah. And four of the most common are gang trafficking, pimp trafficking, familial trafficking, and survival trafficking. That's wow. the four most common types. And so, and they all look completely different. And so it's really mm-hmm. important to keep that in mind, you know, and I'm glad you highlighted that. Like this sex trafficking in America typically is pimp controlled um, oftentimes. And this is what it looks like. It looks like your boyfriend. It looks like someone offering you a safe place to stay. stay. You know, someone offering you a meal when they see you at the bus stop because you're running away from your mom and dad and they pick you up and say, hey, do you want to go to McDonald's? Yeah. I mean, that's how it happens. Generally. And they're looking, they're looking for vulnerable victims like you, homeless, yeah. poor, young girls that have dropped out, don't have a family. And that is who they prey on, just like you. And we'll talk about, because I know the next part of your story, when you get caught in again, the grooming process. But let's, mm-hmm. let's, we'll talk about that the next part, because I know that that was a long grooming process and how you remain trapped in it. So your days, you can't get out of it. You're having long days with this guy working the streets 
what happens next? So, um, like I said, I was just in this, you know, place of complete, utter despair, you know, just fantasizing about suicide. And Mm. one point we were driving through a strip club parking lot, looking for customers as we would often do. And there was this guy standing in the back of the parking lot and he had this big Rottweiler dog with him. And so we pulled up next to him to see if he was going to be a customer and talk to him about his dog. And he looked in the back seat of the car and he was like, why don't you get out? Let me see what you're working with. And I said, okay, assuming he was going to buy me. And so I got out of the car and went around to the trunk where he was waiting for me. And he told me I was beautiful mm-hmm. in a time where I felt lower than dirt. He told me he was going to give me his phone number, but he didn't want me to give it to those other two girls, which made me feel special in a time where I literally wanted to die every day. And so I took his phone number on a sheet of paper and I hid it from the other two girls. And I started sneaking around to pay phones to call this guy. And sometimes a woman would answer his phone, but he told me it was a secretary. And I was amazed by that. I hear this guy was interested in me and he obviously saw what I was doing, but he was offering me help and told me, you know, that he would, that I could have a different future. And he was actually 20 years older than me. So he was 37. He was from California as a small town, Texas girl. I always dreamed about going to California. Yeah. And, um, man, everything he said, I just ate it up, you know, hook, line and sinker of wow. And, and so he told me if I ever got an opportunity to run, that I could call him and he would pick me up and he would be there for me. And so I remember like weighing those two options in my head, either commit suicide or give this guy a try. And I, cause I couldn't, I couldn't keep living where I was. I couldn't keep doing that. Um, it was, it was beyond miserable. And so, um, I remember thinking like, well, I can always kill myself later. Why not give this guy a try? And so I did. I I ran into his arms thinking he was going to get me out and I was going to have this whole different life. And, you know, I, I, the first day he took me to the movie theater and he, um, you know, here I was my first trafficker, my first pimp and trafficker, the same exact thing. Just if anyone's confused, it's a synonym, right? They're the same thing. And, and so my first trafficker, he starved us. I only ate out of gas stations every day. He only gave us enough money for like a candy bar and a Coke. And sometimes that would be all I ate in an entire day. And so. Cause all the money pimp. you're getting, you're turning right over to your pimp or trafficker. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There was no way we could spend any of the money, even if it was in our pocket momentarily because it was his money. And then yeah. the other, the other girls would tell on you and then you're going to be met with violence or, you know, ostracized or whatever. Right. And so, um, so you're at the movies with this guy. It's a little bit different. He seems like way nicer and you're not even thinking this guy's a pimp or a trafficker. You're thinking this might be a boyfriend might be a husband opportunity. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And he bought tickets for the movie. I don't remember what movie we were going to see, but instead of going in the theater and watching the movie, we just sat on the bench, you know, where there's little benches by the bathrooms. Mm -hmm. And he talked to me for hours and he asked me, all these questions about my family and you know my my life growing up and where i was from no one would pay that kind of attention to me and and that felt really good and when i told him what my family had done to me about the girls home and he was like oh wow you must have a terrible parent mm. you know how could they do that to you you're a good kid and he started instantly telling me you know well a family isn't who you're born into a, a family isn't blood it's who you choose to be around that's your family 
He knew and, exactly I mean, what he was doing. So this exactly. is the grooming process that's starting, that he's exactly. just telling you everything you needed and wanted to hear. Yep. And here he was blowing this money for the movie and here I'm being, I'm being starved every day. And so yeah. he's successful, you know, by the world's terms, he had this bright red pickup truck. And, and so we left the movie theater that day and he took me to a hotel the first night and he had sex with me. And the next day we woke up and he said, I'm going to, do you want to live with me? I'm going to take you to my house if you do. And I said, yes, I do. Like, yeah, whatever you're, I, I'm in, you know? And so it, I was so hungry, you know, and that's what people don't understand is traffickers offer instant acceptance and love. Mm. And to a kid that's vulnerable, living on the streets and stealing food every day or eating out of gas stations, when someone offers you that, it feels so good. It's, it's basically impossible to not accept. Right. And, and we as a church have to figure out, well, why aren't we offering that? Like right. sometimes we don't. Sometimes we offer, as you mentioned, we're we're inadvertently judgmental or we're not accepting. We think, you know, we make people feel like, well, some churches, you know, that you have to clean up your life before you can come in versus no, like we need to be reaching them in their brokenness and loving them in their brokenness, just like Jesus does for all of us. Right. And so um, he offered this instant acceptance and love and he took me to his house and it was a 5,000 square foot stucco home in a neighborhood full of brick homes. I remember and I was blown away. I mean, it was a huge yeah. two-story house. Like, I grew up in a very modest middle-class house. I remember one point as a as a small child, my dream was to have a room with a door on it. One time we rented mm. a house that was too small, and so I had to use the dining room as a makeshift bedroom. And so he took me to this house, and I was, I mean, I've never even been in a house that nice before, really. And so I was like, he, he took me upstairs and he showed me everything was really lavishly decorated and all custom done. And every room had a different theme to it. And he, he told me that he gave me a bedroom and it was like my own end of the upstairs that I had. And it was an attached bathroom and man, I was blown away. Like, yeah, whatever this guy is doing, I'm in, you know, I want to yeah. live here. I, you know, I want to change my life. I don't want to go back to what I was doing. And so that's what he kept telling me about. He had businesses. Um, he was in the retail clothing industry. Uh, we would soon have make custom dog beds. We had a pizza restaurant. I mean, all these creative business ideas, because of course he never worked a minute in his life. All right. he did where he had tons of time to sit around and be creative. Obviously those ideas never really fleshed out and worked because you can't, you know, be sex trafficking your victims all night and then labor traffic them all day. That's not like a successful business model. Right. Right. <laughs> so, you know, here I am 17, like, wow. And he wanted me to stop smoking, stop drinking, stop using drugs to, to start working out and start eating healthier and to stop talking like street trash. And he took this, street walking, drug using, prostituted child. And he turned me into this classy woman that demanded thousands and flew on private jets across the country. But Mm. it didn't matter how much money was passing through my hands because it was the exact same thing every single day. So he was getting you cleaned up so that you would be a a great product for him to be able to sell. Wasn't getting you cleaned up because he wanted to help you. He wanted exactly. you. Yeah. yeah. And you can imagine what effect that had on me at 17. Like, wow, he really loves me. Yeah. Like he wants me to be a better person. You know, I had no clue. He was only making me the most, most profitable he could. 
So you know, how it felt did, like love. Yeah. So how does it change? Like on a dime, did it change or was it, I mean, it's like, it's hard to understand how it gets from there to what ended up happening. Yeah. There was actually two other girls living with him at that time. They'd already been with him 10 years. I would come to find out. And okay. it was, it was this gradual grooming process of no, those were my sisters. And, uh-huh. you know, typically in the game, th- those girls would be called my wife-in-laws girls being trafficked by the same guy that okay. he told me like in my first situation, but he told me, no, they were my sisters. And you know, that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link and mm. stick, say, pay, never go away, do whatever KB say. Like he had all these rhymes and mantras. And it very much would... is like a family. He's, they're trying to portray that they're setting up for these exactly. girls. Like yeah. daddy and sisters and we're, we're all connected. And cause they know how desperate you are that you need this. So yep. that's the model he's got set up for you. Exactly. And so um, eventually the exploitation began. Honestly, he groomed me for months, though. Yeah. Uh, looking back, I realized he was probably waiting until I turned 18, uh-huh. you know, knowing that he could get in a lot more trouble for trafficking a child. Um, mm-hmm. And so one day this FedEx package arrived in the mail from California, I'll never forget. And it was a birth certificate for somebody named Nicole Wilson. And there was also a social security number from somebody that had died. And so that's the day I became Nicole Ann Wilson, who was born in 1978 instead of 81, which made me old enough to get a job in strip clubs. And, and so once the exploitation began, unlike Lillian, the first girl that took me, these other two girls actually taught me how to do what I was doing. And, um, you know, they didn't leave me on my own in there. And so it always began in strip clubs across every country and you know when we look at the different systems of exploitation in america specifically we have porn sex trafficking prostitution uh, i mean there's webcams right there's dancing there's yeah. they're all separate distinct issues but they're inextricably linked and where you have one you have another and so yeah. at valiant hearts we do outreach into all the strip clubs and the metroplex because we realize no they're not all being trafficked but they're at really high risk of becoming victims. And also many victims are present in the strip clubs. Um, He would send us into the clubs. It's something legal you can do and you'd get in, make enough money in the city, go over to a hotel room, post your ad online and start seeing customers outside of the club. Mm. And so um, the first time he ever sent me out of town, it was with one of the other victims that had been around a really long time. And she was there to watch me and make sure I did everything right. Um, And gosh, Andrea, he had us so organized and conditioned. I really I hate using the word brainwash because I don't know. Most people, it, it just it stirs up something weird in them. But I mean, the conditioning that was yeah. there, though. I mean, when someone beats you, where you have blood pouring out of your face, mm-hmm. and I mean, it could be. Gosh, it's for so many different things, from not putting the toothpaste cap on all the way, or having a remote control on the nightstand that wasn't in perfect alignment with the others. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's for calling a customer too many times and he checked the phone records. I mean, it was always something different. And what he did, he would, he was, as, traffickers are skillful at knowing exactly how to manipulate their victims and using just enough force and then taking away the force and applying love. And I mean, it's just a terrible domestic violence cycle. Right. I mean, very similar to a battered wife. I mean, exactly. Horribly abused, but then coming back with love and apologies. And then so that was the cycle you were in. And it sounds like they have control, like you said, of every aspect from the littlest things. And so I'm guessing that's why you you obey them in everything because and you will know that you're going to get 
be like you were horribly physically abused too right yeah uh horribly the, yeah. I remember yeah mm. I mean we could go for days talking about that one of the victims that was only there for three out of my 10 years she recently a few years back had to have um, reconstructive facial surgery she was having so much trouble um she was having a lot of pain flying to to the point where during takeoff and landing she was in tears mm. and so she finally broke down and went to the ENT doctor and they did a CT scan of her head. And the first thing they said when they came back in the room was, wow, it looks like you've been in the ring with Mike Tyson. Oh, she God. had five different broken bones in her face that had never healed properly because of course we were never allowed to go to the doctor because that would have drawn suspicion. And so, yeah. I mean, that's just a, a small example of, of how intense the physical abuse was. And I know and, you didn't, you said you didn't like to say brainwash, but I mean, I'm trying to think of another word, but really you are. I mean, he's given you a new birth certificate, a new name. I mean, you are living yeah. like you're a different person. I mean, and I'm Completely. guessing that's how you quote cope because it just sounds like hell on earth. And yeah. oh, Becca, wow. Well, I mean, you learn how to disassociate is, yeah. is the technical term. And, yeah. and you know, my trafficker is actually the one who taught me how to do that. He taught me that when I'm on my way to work, that I'm becoming Nicole or Jessica or you know, Julianne or whoever I was in that city that I'm becoming that person. And in a way it made it a little more palatable because then it was like, those things aren't happening to me. They're not happening to Becca. They're happening to this other person. But in reality, what he was doing was teaching us to disassociate. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, that's the skill set. in order to survive even a day in prostitution or in the life. Oh my gosh. I mean, the amount of violence, because it's not just violence from your trafficker or your pimp at home. It's, you're fighting other girls on the street over customers or over whatever it may be. Maybe your your pimps are beefing with each other and now you have to fight this girl on the street or you're facing violence from the customers. I mean, these men that buy women for sex, I mean, a lot of them have sick, deranged fantasies. Yeah. A lot of them, they get angry if maybe they if their experience is too quick for them and you know they want to fight you and take their money back or they want to rape you to be able to go a second time. I mean... There, there is no safe place in prostitution. There's no way to make it safe. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually suing the state of Nevada today to end legalized prostitution there because I was trafficked through the legal system of prostitution. And, and right now in America, there's actually seven states trying to, to legalize this issue by fully decriminalizing both sides. Oh, I did not know that. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit more later when we talk about the film. And you alluded to it already, but just the relationship between the prostitution and the porn, because we think of those yes. as separate from human trafficking, but they're all so connected and interrelated. So after we finish with your story, I want to dive into yeah. that a little bit more, because I think that's crucial that people know and understand that. So yeah. you're being trafficked to all parts of the country, and you're in this for 10 years with this guy. Yes, I <sighs> stayed with him for 10 years. I wound up serving 13 months in federal prison because I was too scared to tell on him a case began. And, you know, honestly, that's the encouraging thing is the way it all started to unravel was a neighbor. A neighbor saw our house. They saw three women and one man, all these nice cars living in this nice house and were home all day. And they decided to say something about it. They mm -hmm. thought we were selling drugs, which we weren't, but that was the beginning to the end for me was, was a, an innocent bystander, a neighbor that decided, you know what, that looks funny. I'm going to say something about it. And so that tip wound up leading federal investigators to follow us across the country. They went through our trash. They were collecting our trash for a couple of years. And um, they eventually arrested me first in Las Vegas because I was the youngest. And they thought, okay, maybe I would snitch or roll, you know, cooperate with the investigators. And 
unfortunately for me and for them, I was prepared for that from day one. It wasn't mm -hmm. if they came, it was when they came. And, and I knew that he would murder me if I yeah. ever told on him. And, and unfortunately, the way we're working these cases right now, it, it really relies heavily on victim corroboration. And we really need to move towards more evidence-based prosecutions. And so that's one of the other topics that we kind of train on and with law enforcement, because victims aren't always in a place where they're able to testify. I mean, honestly, it's a really scary process. And I mean, just with all the abuse and everything, it's really traumatic, um, even if you're willing to help, much less if you're if you're resistant because you believe that it's your fault and it was your choice. And you know, you believe that he still loves you and, you know, like I did. And right. so I served those 13 months and I still went back. So to was him. your 13 months, sorry to interrupt you, but your 13 months, this is just crazy to me that you even served 13 months. So was that for being in set? Like, what was that for? Oh. Was it the tax evasion? I'm clarify so what, what that was for. So initially they arrested me on fraud charges. They they found okay. my fake, fake identity. And so gotcha. they knew I had opened, you know, federal bank accounts and different names. And they really thought we were victims, but they just couldn't prove it. So basically they treated me like a criminal. They arrested me and they tried to t get me to talk, which like I said, there was no way. And, and that mind frame I was in that I, I was going to at that point. And so they just threatened me and said, okay, if you don't help us, you know, we're, if you, if you help us, we're going to charge you with this. If you don't help us, we're going to charge you with this. And I remember thinking like, so either way I get charged, like mm -hmm. get out of here. <laughs> right. And, and so I just kept my mouth shut. And with the, the deal that we wound up making eventually was conspiracy to commit tax evasion. Okay. So that's really the only, you know, thing that they could prove. And they gave us a plea deal. Um, even after raiding homes and finding all this evidence, you would think. Um, but our trafficker was really smart. You know, he what he sat around all day and watched how not to get caught shows. And so he knew how to evade detection. He knew not to keep evidence at the house. And so um, the in in the absence of any of the victims being willing to talk, they just slapped us all with tax evasion, basically. Wow. That is mind blowing. I mean, yeah. Oh my gosh, Becca. Okay. So sure. We could dive into that more. But you're, right. So you are, you're 13 months in jail for quote tax evasion. And mm -hmm. what happens during that time? Does he get put in jail or no? Is he just not, not yet? Okay. They got me first. They basically cascaded all of us so that okay. we were all in at different separate times. And gotcha. so um, by the time I got out, like I said, I, I stayed with him for another two years from that point. It took him, he, he went to trial for two years and then he finally turned himself in in summer of 2009. And I remember that's when I finally had the courage to escape. You know, I remember physically getting ill every single day for 30 days when even just thinking about leaving this man. And, and I knew he was in federal prison, like he couldn't yeah. touch me, but that's how scared I was of him. Yeah. And so I remember thinking, okay, I, I have 23 months. He got 24 months total. I remember thinking in that 30 days, like, okay, I have 23 months to start my life over, to run and hide and change my identity before he hunts me down and kills me like he promised. And so I wish life got better then, but it didn't. Honestly, I reverted right back to that 17 year old girl I was when I met him and I started using drugs here. I, I'd been arrested 10 times at that point. I had a, a federal felony. I had, I was a high school dropout. I only got my GED because the federal prison made me, I had no job experience that I could share. I mean, sure we were entrepreneurs, but what was I going to do? Use my trafficker as a reference. Right. So like, what was I going to do with my life? You know, right. I mean, and so I, I stayed in, that's the only option that I really had was to stay in. And that's such and, a good point. I mean, because 
one, you have all the psychological baggage that you've still not dealt with. So how could you possibly move forward as a healthy woman and just go right into society functioning? You can't, you have so much baggage. And then something else that I, I'm going to quote you on that I heard you say somewhere else was getting out of exploitation usually means choosing poverty. Exactly. And so that's kind of what you were faced with. You, you had a pretty quote glamorous life with things, everything right. provided for. So mm-hmm. choosing to get out of that was not hard, was not easy. And then what do you have? So it was right. a real, it's a real struggle to get out of this industry for girls like you. Yes. I'm so glad you highlighted that. And I mean, it is, that's, highlights a huge need that we as a community can wrap around them and meet and helping these people get out. And so, um, I stayed in, I stayed in for a few months, you know, I actually did the math the other day. I I usually say I stayed in for a year, but honestly it was only a few months. Um, I did the math and realized like, Oh, I've actually quoted that wrong. So it was, I ran from him in the summer and it was later that fall. I, I started using meth. I'd never even used meth before. And I was just floundering, went through sure. one dysfunctional relationship after another and just grasping at straws, you know, just anything that would hold on to me. And so I wound up moving to Las Vegas of all places to get clean from drugs. And <laughs> that's what you do, right? No, <laughs> right. <laughs> I know. Uh, and okay. so I did though. I was able to get clean. I um, wound up at the, I went to the gym one day and I met this guy who instantly became my boyfriend because I was still in that really unhealthy sure. place of instant you know things and so i um moved in with him and he wanted me to get out of the life and that sounded pretty good to me because i was miserable and so about a year into that relationship i found out i was pregnant and that's when everything changed for me Mm. you know those of you that are parents you realize that you'll do stuff for your kids that you'd never do for yourself and so i remember i started feeling burdened to pray for the first time in a long time and I, I remember thinking, gosh, if I walked into a church, I'd probably like spontaneously combust, like, mm. you know, just blow up. I mean, just sin yeah. all over me. And, and like I said, I didn't grow up with a Jesus that wanted a relationship with me. You know, I grew up with a, the angry, vindictive God. And right. so, and you were um, not a rule follower. So I'm sure you felt like he doesn't want exactly. me. I've done nothing to deserve that. So I can Thanks. totally see how you felt that way. Exactly. But now I had this baby growing inside me and that changed everything. And I realized I didn't want to live in that environment and raise a baby in that environment. And so I called my family in Texas and said, Hey, I'm pregnant. Um, you know, can you guys help me? And they said, well, we won't give you any money to get here, but if you get here, you can live with us for free. And so that's the only promise I had to go on. And, you know, honestly, I I just want to say real quick, Andrea, how lucky I am and blessed I am because I had a family I could have reached Mm -hmm. out to. You know, I I stand in the gap and I train across the country today for those victims that don't have healthy families. I mean, what if I had no one to call? Right. You know, how would I have ever gotten out? And the answer is never. I I wouldn't have. I I would have stayed in. And so even with a healthy family, it can still happen. But so much more so. It's so much harder to get out for people that don't have anyone healthy in their lives. And so I moved back home to Texas, January 7th of 2012. I was- You drove 23 hours straight. Did I read that right? Exactly, yes. <laughs> From LA yes. to Texas, you were ready to get out, or I'm sorry, Las Vegas to Texas. You were ready to get out of it. Exactly. I was four months pregnant, you know, 30 years old, like literally no idea who I even was, what I was going to do with my life. I was facing all those barriers I already mentioned, and but I knew I had to do something different because I didn't want a day of my son's future to look anything like my past. 
And so, you know, that's the thing about victims is that we don't have compassion on ourselves, but we do have compassion on other people. And so for me, I mean, like God knew what it would take. He knew it would take me needing someone else to care about. And that's what would change everything for me. And so um, I moved back into my mom and dad's house. You got on Medicaid, food stamps, like a lot of really hard decisions. I mean, thousands of dollars passing through your hands every single day. Like, even though it's not yours, you kind of get used to that lifestyle. You get used to the Gucci purses or the Benz and BMW. I mean, all these nice things that they give you to attract other victims. Like, and so man, it was hard going down that Medicaid office and enrolling. Like, right. I, I thought, Lord, what am I doing? Like, how am I ever going to make it? What, you know, I didn't even know how to live a normal life. And so, but I had my son. And so I started, I had my son in June of 2012 and I started going to school that fall immediately. And I remember, you know, really just trying to figure it out. I had, I was honestly terrified, you know, physical freedom doesn't equal emotional or a men- mental freedom. Yes. And I, I had no idea who I was and I, I was really scared to find out. It's the first time I didn't have a man in my life telling me who I was and what I wanted to do. And so, um, but slowly, you know, with a community of support around me, I was able to begin rebuilding. And, you know, as you mentioned, went back to school, I graduated summa cum laude with my bachelor's in criminal justice. Mm. And then went on to get my master's degree in criminology and um, man, been able to do some amazing things like, gosh, <laughs> so many days I wake up, um, you know, I was on Daystar TV just two weeks ago. And I mean, I just pinched myself like, yeah. Lord, I can't believe the life that I have, but it took me submitting fully to God and, you know, finding out that there is a different way. There's a better way right. to do it than Jesus loves me, like I said, in my brokenness, in my mess and my filth, that's where he wants to step in and love me. Absolutely. And you did, a part of your story is you did, before you got to that point, you you did walk into a church. You said you felt like you would combust, but when you got to Texas, somebody invited you to church and you went, and that was kind of where the, everything just shifted for you. Can you tell us a little bit about that day and what happened after that? It did. And that's the first you know, part of community that I found when I said yeah. it took a community of people around me. So I, I went to church. I'd only slept about two hours after that long drive from Las Vegas. And my sister came in the house and she said, Hey, I'm going to go to church. Do you want to go with me? And I hopped up. I had this hopeful expectancy. And I remember getting really moved during the worship songs and gosh, music is so powerful. And I don't even remember what the pastor said, but I went down her prayer afterwards and I still blame myself for everything I had been through. But the only thing I knew I was struggling with at that moment was that I was four months pregnant and I was in a church without a ring on my finger and I thought I would be shunned. And, but I knew that, you know, I, I went down for prayer and I said, I I just moved here. I I don't have anything for my baby and I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'm starting my life over. And this lady, instead of, you know, judging me or anything, giving me like hard eyes, she looked at me with compassion and gave me this huge hug. And Mm. she told me all about Embrace Grace, which is, a program there in 504 churches across the country. It's a yes, program. Yes, we've had Amy Ford on here. I did not know that that was the program that you were in. Yes, yes, ah, I love so I cool. love Amy dearly. Yeah, this is back in 2012, like before yes, they. Yes. Okay. Were, I did not know that. Guys. That's so cool. Yes. All right. Yeah. So, um, I Pastor Samantha Golden is who I actually went up to. You know, by chance. Well, not by chance, by the Holy Spirit. Yes. <laughs> um, for prayer, and she was the pastor over the single ministries, and so she. 
you know, just gave me this huge hug and I was met with this empathy and compassion and I was given services and help. I mean, that, that program, Embrace Grace, gave me everything I needed for my baby. I mean, they throw a huge baby shower. They had yes. a princess day, like all these things. And so slowly the scales started to fall off my eyes. A, a couple months later, um, a girl I was in the life with called me and she said, hey, there's this group of church ladies that wants to help strippers and they have the support group that meets in Colleyville and, and um, did I want to go with her? And I remember thinking, what? Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, they're going to be all judgy. Like, no way. How yeah. can I ever like connect with these women? And so right. I, um, but it was a free meal and I was pregnant and I decided to go. And so I walked through the doors of Valiant Hearts, uh, which is formerly We Are Cherished back then and walked through the doors and I mean, was met with just so much like Pastor Samantha, you know, the most kind, non-judgmental eyes, genuine embraces by people that saw something inside me that I didn't believe existed. Mm. And it stuck for me. I kept going every single week. The other girl never came again. She actually stayed in the life. And, but it, it just struck a chord in me. And I, I knew I had tasted something different and I, I knew I needed more. And I needed to find out who this Jesus was. And, you know, just being met with the hands and feet of Jesus through, through normal yeah. people, you know? Yeah. And I just love that. I mean, the church does get a bad rap, but this example is such, it's just incredible of what the church can do and what it should be and welcomed you and literally changed your life. And, and then the Valiant Hearts, what you said that you went out with that girl and started going to those weekly meetings, that is what you're now the executive director of, right? I am. Yeah. It's incredible. Became Ah, became executive director in 2017. Yeah. So we have, we still offer those same weekly support groups and walk alongside women as they get out of exploitation. We also um, have housing for the women. Okay. Um, we provide a variety of services. Um, but we also realize if we're just helping women get out, we're always going to have a job tomorrow. Mm-hmm. If we're not also doing something to go after the demand. So we also right. offer weekly support groups for men that are struggling with porn and sex addiction that know, hey, I have a problem. And they come to learn they they're fueling the demand for sex trafficking and for prostitution by doing that. And, and that's so we such, offer support groups for them too. That is huge. And that's not hurt. I mean, that is not the common model at all. And we'll talk about the film in a little bit that shows in January, but mm-hmm. that's a huge part of what it talks about is the demand. Like we're always going to have these victims if there's a demand and you can exactly. keep working and working, but if there's a demand, they're always going to be there. Let's talk about that a little bit with the correlation between the prostitution, the pornography, and the sex trafficking. And one of the quotes says, where you have porn, you have trafficking. And I don't mm-hmm. think we think of that in American culture at all. We think it's a separate thing. We think a lot of guys look at porn, which in fact, 50 to 70% do, even in the church. And a lot of guys are have been there's support groups for that and or yeah I, I struggle with it but it's okay my wife knows it or I struggled with it and my wife forgave me but this is so much deeper so can you talk a little bit about that because I think this is something we need need to hear and be aware of it is I mean just a couple things I'm going to say real quick is that porn is the ambiance of prostitution I mean everywhere you go in prostitution whether you're being trafficked or not there's porn playing in all the rooms so the the customers have been watching porn and now they want to act out what they're seeing by purchasing another human being. And also porn is used as a training tool. Traffickers make victims watch porn to learn what to do sexually, to, to satisfy. And so it porn is used in, in a variety of different ways in trafficking. But I mean, what is porn? Porn is filmed prostitution. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, and we've somehow made it legal just because there's a camera in the room. Like, yeah. I mean, how, how crazy is that? I mean, it, literally two people getting paid to have sex. That is prostitution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it is very core. And I mean, I, there's porn survivors that are coming out now and I can't even, what I've, what I have experienced in my life, Andrea is horrific, but I can't even, I feel like it is so much worse when it's been filmed and it's always going to be out there and there's Mm. nothing you can do about it. And what these survivors have said is how often they would cry and say they didn't want to do it. They changed their mind. But once you show up to shoot that film, it doesn't matter if you cry and says it hurt. They just keep filming. You have to keep going. You maybe book a job that you're going to do, you know, a husband and wife role play and you show up. And instead there's six guys and it turned into a gangbang now. Mm. And you don't have a choice to say no. And so, I mean, I think a lot of people get confused and think, well, they're choosing to do it. Well, I mean, when you introduce an influencer as powerful as money, then consent goes out the window. You cannot buy consent. If I can't pay my bills, if I can't feed my kids at home, if I don't have sex with you, then how is that consent? It's not. Mm -hmm. And the porn too, and that's something from the movie that releases, it talked about that that is kind of like that it starts that way a lot. And men need Mm -hmm. more and more to like satisfy or to get that same rush and how it can just more and more deviant. Like you don't start, most of the time you don't start out as a 40 year old man looking at 13 year olds in pornography, like Mm -hmm. gradually need more and more. There's just so many aspects to that. And so with the prostitution, tell me, how that's also related to the trafficking. I mean, is it most of the time, this is such a, there's so many facets to this, but are girls that are caught up in porn and prostitution, are they a lot of times being trafficked? Like they don't want to be there, but are they also trafficking victims? Kind of tell me, walk oh, through that. Cause you, okay. Cause I'm, that's oh, yeah. a little fuzzy for me. So clarify that a little bit. Yeah. And it's really hard. I mean, it, it is really difficult. They call it the dark figure of crime because it's okay. so underreported. And so it's really hard to say, well, 80% of people in prostitution are actually trafficking victims. Okay. But what we do know is the average age of entry, um, research varies a little, but the average age of entry into prostitution is usually between 11 to 14 years old. Oh my gosh. Becca. So, and that's what people like, and that's why I love that, you know, I'm able to serve at an organization that serves adult women because there's yeah. so few services for adult women. I think a lot of us can look at kids and we have that reaction that you just had. You know, we mm-hmm. think, we know that's not supposed to be happening to right. them and that's wrong whether they're saying they want to do it or not you know whether they're there by force or by circumstance it doesn't matter we want to help them get out but somehow when these kids hit the magic number of 18 somehow we assume that they can get out and do something different and now if they're point. choosing to stay in it's their choice when it's not that's it was never point. their choice yeah, yeah and so you know we have to look at them whether they're whether they're actively being trafficked most likely they were at some point in the past if they're involved in prostitution and so we have to look at them with compassion and realize whether it's by force or circumstance we at valiant hearts we serve anyone that's been sexually exploited because the problem is so much bigger than trafficking like yes trafficking is horrible but it's exploitation in all its form. And one of the, you were talking about statistics, but there's so many, and I'll probably share more of those in the show notes, but one of them, according to a recent report by the U.S. State Department, the United States is one of the leading consumers of sex trafficking, as well as leading the country of origin for victims. I mean, the United States is the top player. Like we think, oh, it's all these other countries that are selling their girls or don't value women, but it's us. 
it's right here. Oh, no, um, I mean, they call it um, America's a destination country where mm-hmm. victims, you know, victims are brought here. Um, but honestly, most of the victims in America are domestic born, like you said. I mean, this is where, think about where are there men with money? That's mm-hmm. where trafficking is. That's where exploitation is. I mean, it's simple economics. When you think about the demand, it dictates the supply. So wherever there's men that are willing to purchase prostitution, the traffickers are going to meet that need with vulnerable victims. Let's talk a little bit about, with that, the demand. And you are a mom. Mom, is your little boy seven now? Yes. Yes. So yes. So, yes. So we think, and I have two girls. So we always think, oh, what can we do to prove our daughters or make sure they don't get into this? But as a mom of a boy, talk a little bit about that. Like, what some are intentional things that parents of boys can do? Because, like we said, it's the demand that's really creating and not going to have this end unless the demand goes away. Yeah. Well, I think it's about teaching boys empathy. I think we have these gendered stereotypes that we need to make boys tough and boys can't have emotions that we don't want them to cry. We tell them to walk it off. You know, teaching your kids the act of empathy. You know, my son, he was, you know, probably like many of the listeners' kids, was complaining about having to shower every day. (laughs) (laughs) What is the deal with that? My 11-year-old, my 10-year-old does that. And I'm like, come on. (laughs) I know. And so I really wanted to teach him, like, about some people don't have that opportunity. Yeah. Like, honestly, that's a privilege that we in America, right? Like first world problems, hello, that that we have, that we don't want to shower every day when there's some people that go weeks, right? Without clean water, you know, or they clean themselves in a river, like in, in different countries. And so, you know, I wanted to take my son and have this experience of, no, let's go buy a couple cases of water and let's go to the bridge where people are living under it and give them water. And you can see how some people live mm-hmm. because- you know, I, and I think it starts with that empathy that we have to teach them like, no, it's okay to feel, you don't need to be a bully to get what you want. And, you know, to just understanding like how we manipulate people, which, you know, I mean, we all organize other people to get what we want. I, I do the neurobiology presentations with Dr. Chris Wilson. We're actually going to write a book uh, released in 2021, by the way. But um, <laughs> so we organize each other. And so, but you know, sometimes we can do it in a healthy way and sometimes we can do it in an unhealthy way, which turns into manipulation then. And so, you know, how are we teaching our, our son and our, our sons and our boys to, to be good humans? I mean, right. because it's, it's really just about seeing other people and being empathetic and understanding. And I think it's easier to do that. Maybe um, I think it's more natural, I should say, to do that with girls, yeah. um, that girls were, were more emotionally expressive and, you know, we can, we feel maybe more compassion for other people, but I mean, that doesn't mean that we can't teach that to our sons too. I I think it's just not as, not as natural and we should. Right. And the other side of that, I mean, we live in a world that's so sexualized where we hear the word pimp in songs. Like it's just another everyday word. I read somewhere you even talk about that how many times you would see men bringing their sons into a strip club. Like it's a rite of passage. And it's like, that's, a message that we've got to somehow start breaking through that this is not just a normalized part of society. And I don't know, I, there's not an answer to that, but I think, huh, I don't know. There's, I just think that's something to be aware of too. Like what we're teaching our sons as far as what, what are women's worth and this highly sexualized world. And this is a hypersexualization. You're right. Like we're in a terrible place in this country and it's no surprise. The Bible told us we would be here, yeah. but what are, what are we doing about it? You know, what are we doing to make sure that our families are different and that we're going to be culture changers. Yeah. And I think we as parents cannot be too involved and too tuned into our kids' lives. 
is it age 11 that the average age that kids are first exposed to porn? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. we as parents cannot just let our kids be on the computer, be on these smartphones. Like we need to be so involved Mm -hmm. and going with that, the flip side of with girls, you know, like I said, I have two girls and Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing is being involved with their lives and knowing that they can tell you things. Cause if you look at like your life and I'm sure others, like you felt like you couldn't go to your parents when you were raped or when you were molested. And I think that's where that, those seeds just of shame and doubt were planted. So I think Mm -hmm. another message for parents, would you agree is like, keep those, that communication open with your kids. Oh, I think so much. So, I mean, it's, it's all about actually having a, a really a a relationship, you know, a real relationship. And, and if whatever reason it can't be the parent, then that parent has a duty to find someone safe for that kid. If it's a youth pastor at church or someone that their kid can, if it's a counselor, I mean, somebody that the kid can open up to Um, and for them to constantly be working on that relationship to try to make it better because that's huge. So in our few remaining moments, Becca, I could keep chatting with you. There's just so much here. And I just encourage parents to not only do these things, get involved, talk with your kids, but there's a movie coming out January 23rd, Blind Eyes Open, and it'll be showing one day across the United States, and you're involved in that, and you you share some of your story in that. Tell us a little bit in a nutshell about that movie and why people should see it. I think this film is so important because I think this is a conversation we don't have often enough inside the church walls. Mm -hmm. And when they asked me to be a part of this film, it was actually back in 2013. And um, once I heard Ships at Tarshish and Jeff Rogers and the other people's heart behind it, and it was to start these conversations inside the church for this, for, I mean, it's gotta be the church that rises up and does something about this issue because the world doesn't have restoration and redemption. Only Jesus does. And so if we're not offering that to these people, if we're not going out to meet them where they are, then they're going to stay broken and stay hurting and continue hurting other people. And so I think this film is really important for that reason, but it also gives um, a really good dive into the different types of trafficking. There's six survivors featured in the film, which I'm one of, and we all have different stories. And we're all doing different things about it now. Um, but I think it's really important. Um, I think, you know, age appropriately, if you're able to have those conversations with your kids, it should be something that kids see. It's not going to be so racy that you're going to cover their eyes or anything. Um, it's a really well done film that is going to ignite the church, I hope. It absolutely is. I've watched the preview um, that I had access to with my husband last night and we were just both blown away and it was so good for us to watch together and talk about and when we were done he even said oh our 17 year old's gonna watch this and she will and it's it's Mm -hmm. and it's something that he's gonna share too with males that he knows because it does talk a lot about that demand and Mm -hmm. uh, that part of it that we need to address so Yes, I cannot recommend this film enough. And we'll put links to that on the show note. It's showing in 800 theaters across the United States. And I just, uh, I encourage people to see it. I thank you just so much because it's got to be hard to rehash your story. But it is amazing what God, how he's totally turned your life around. I mean, it's just Mm. incredible. And I just, again, thank you so much for sharing, Becca. And tell us where, where we can find you if we want to read more about Valiant Hearts or connect with you. Where can you be found? Yeah, so people can find me um, on my website. It's Becca, spelled B-E-K-A-H, BeccaSpeaksOut.com. And I can also be reached at Valiant Hearts, which is the org that I run. It's 
Valiant with a V as in Victor and hearts.org is our website. And I'd love to hear from anybody. Okay. Well, we will connect all of that for the show notes. And again, just thank you for your vulnerability and honesty today, Becca. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Andrea. Great to chat with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I really can't encourage you enough to take your time to go see the movie Blind Eyes Open this week. Take your husband's or boyfriend's too, because as we spoke about, the demand is what creates this industry, and this movie does such a good job of conveying just how the use of pornography does that. Since it's showing in over 800 theaters, you can find one near you at the link on the show notes for Rebecca Charleston at HerStorySpeaks.com.